you are everything, God. Lord, for you gave everything for us so that we might live. And God, may we not hold selfishly with clenched fists tightly, God, to what we think is ours. But God, may we come before you and say, yes, Lord, I am yours, God. And everything, God, that you have given, God, we give back to you, God. For we believe, Lord, that you are our Lord and Savior, that you are Jesus Christ, Lord, that you died that you rose from the grave, that you ascended into heaven. God, and that one day you will come again. And God, may we not live our lives just narrow-minded and close-fisted, but God, may we live live our lives with our eyes and our gaze fixed upward towards the cross, Lord Jesus, and the glory of the cross, God. And God, may we say, here am I, Lord. Lord, do what you will. God, for we are yours, Lord. And may our lives and may our voices In our hearts, God, reflect, God, our love for you. Lord Jesus, we love you and we praise you. And in your name we pray, amen. You may be seated. If your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to the book of Luke. We are making our way through Luke. We've been in it <clears throat> off and on for, for a couple years now. We're in Luke chapter 16. Chapter uh, verse 14 is where we're going to be today. And so before we dig in, I kind of just want to recap. I kind of had this other intro all set up for today. And then this morning I said, you know, that's really not a very good intro. So we just scratched it all out. And we're just going to go with um, reminding us of the context of where we are at. Chapter 15, there was three parables. Do you remember which ones they are? All three? It's all about losing something. The lost sheep, coin, son. There it is. Um, And the whole point of those parables is Jesus is addressing the Pharisees. The Pharisees see that Jesus hangs out with tax collectors and the poor people. And the Pharisees are going, ah, it's really not who you should be hanging out with. And so Jesus now tells these three parables to reveal their heart. And what he's saying is that everyone is rebellious. Whether you're outwardly rebellious like the younger son or you're inwardly rebellious like the older son, meaning you do everything right, but you're really doing it for yourself rather than for other people. So the whole idea was everyone needs repentance. And the Father loves for anyone, whether they're outwardly or inwardly rebellious, to come to him in repentance. Then in chapter 16, Jesus begins to shift his focus to the disciples. So it's kind of like everyone needs repentance. Now he says, and if you repent, this is what life now looks like as a member of my family or a member of the kingdom of God. And so Jesus then says, those who belong to him are generous with their money because it's not really our money anyway. Remember that? Jesus talks about how we are stewards, not owners of money, but that God blesses us with money so that we may give it away. Now this was new teaching. Remember last week we talked about in the Old Testament, God shows his favor upon his people by blessing them with money, with possessions, with land. So one of the ways in the Old Testament you knew when Israel was doing what was right is God lavished grace and blessings upon them. But when they didn't do what was right, what did he do? 
He removed them from their land, took their money, took all the possessions away. It was a visible way of seeing if God's favor is on you. However, in the New Testament, because of Jesus Christ, no longer does God's people accumulate money, but rather God's favor is seen in the fact that we give money away. It's not wrong to be rich or poor, but the idea is no longer does God show favor necessarily through the giving of money, but we show that we are his people by our giving away of money. So now as we come to verse 14, in this context, the Pharisees are going, oh no. They don't like this at all. They now, they're not only are they grumbling at, what Jesus, at who Jesus hangs out with, but now they don't like Jesus. Because they're challenging everything that they believe. And so with that, let's go ahead and turn to verse 14. If you don't mind, stand as we do. Uh, We're going to read the rest of the chapter. The title is The Great Reversal. And what we're going to see is that the evidence that we are members of God's kingdom is seen in how we love and serve others now. Verse 14. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed him and he said to them you are those who justify yourselves before men but god knows your hearts for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of god the law and the prophets were until john since then the good news of the kingdom of god is preached and everyone forces his way into it but it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. There was a rich man who was close. We're going to talk about this. This is confusing. Like, this is a weird whole passage. Verse 19, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, Remember that in your lifetime, you received your good things, and Lazarus, in in like manner, bad things. But now, he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm that has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send to my father's house, for I have father's to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Let's pray. Father, you have given us your word as a means of grace, that we would know who you are, that we would know how you have loved us through the sending of your Son, that we would see that your Son is uh, the Son of God who has come to die on a cross, that we uh, would be forgiven and given new life. We see that in your word you also show us how to live as members of your kingdom. 
And God, as we're in chapter 16 today, uh, give us wisdom to understand this passage. Give us humility that we'd be willing to receive the message and instruction that you are giving us today. And Father, I pray, change us however you would change us. Make us more into your will. God, conform us into the image of your son, Jesus. Help us to know that as members of your kingdom, God, we're to be characterized by love and by service. Lord, we thank you for your word. In your blessed name, Jesus, amen. You may be seated. So in the beginning of chapter 16, if you remember, Jesus gives that parable of the dishonest manager. He turns to the disciples. The parable is focused on the disciples, but Jesus knows the Pharisees are all still listening. He knows they're all around them. And so I think he, while he's encouraging the disciples to be generous, he very much is using this parable as a means of exposing the Pharisee's heart. And what we see is in the very beginning, the Pharisee's heart has been exposed and they grumble at Jesus. And so this whole passage is really divided up into two sections. We have uh, verses 1 or verses 14 through 18, the instruction. In verses 19 through 31, the example. And it's good that he gives an example. I think Jesus knew this section is hard. If you remember last week, we said the dishonest manager is one of the most difficult parables to unpack. The passage we're in today is difficult too. And so uh, we're going to make our way through, and we'll make comments about it as we go. Um, so if in this first section you're a little fuzzy, hopefully as we move into the example, everything gets clarified um, and we'll just pray that the Spirit speaks very, very clearly today. Uh, but if you look at verse 14, we see the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. Okay, go back to chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners. We've gone from grumbling at who Jesus hangs out with to now grumbling at Jesus. You see the, 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 the progress here? And so what we see is that they do not like what he's saying about being a member of the kingdom and being generous with the money. And so in verse 14, it says they are lovers of money. So Luke is making very sure that we understand who these people are. They heard all these things. They ridiculed him. Jesus responds and says, you are those who justify yourselves before men. But God knows your hearts. What is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And what the first thing we see is that man's will and God's will are fundamentally opposed to one another. We're fundamentally opposed to one another. And that's something we, we see very clearly here. The Pharisees love being respected and esteemed by others. They love walking down the street, entering into the marketplace, wherever they are, and for people to look at them and go, wow. That guy's got his life all put together. They like that respect. They like the idea that because they have money and they dress right, that people think they must be godly. They don't like when Jesus says, actually, godliness is seen, is seen in giving money away. Because if we're giving money away, then we're not going to have our nice robes on. How are people going to tangibly be able to see what a great person I am? So the Pharisees are grumbling at, at Jesus. Jesus says, what you exalt is an abomination 
to God. And so what that means is what we treasure. When we treasure things more than we treasure God, God hates that. Do you know that? He hates what we treasure when it's more than him. If you remember, God makes Adam and Eve in the garden. And do you remember what they're called? They're called image bearers because they're to image the glory of God. What man is to, to image, what man is to reflect, what man is to treasure is God's glory. But remember what Adam and Eve did. They said, actually, rather than imaging you, we want to do what we want. So we're going to take this fruit and we're going to eat it and we're going to decide what's right and wrong and we're going to live the way we want. Isn't that what the Pharisees are doing? They're saying, rather than exalting God, we're going to exalt ourselves. We want to be respected. We want to be looked at. We don't want people to necessarily see God. We want people to see us. And we need to realize that we're really no different apart from the grace of God. We all love to exalt things. We are born treasuring things other than God. In fact, there's a neat passage in John chapter 3, verse 19. Let me just read these verses. Think about what it says about light and dark. It says, this is the judgment that light has come into the world. Jesus is the light. Jesus comes into the world. And the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light lest his works should be exposed. So Jesus is like this light. He's coming into the world. And all these people who are sinful like you and me, we run from the light because we don't want our wicked deeds to be seen in the light. This is why thieves and murderers mostly do things at night so that their actions are disguised by darkness. In the light, things are exposed. So we run from the light. This is what you and I all do. And this is where Jesus then, when he comes, and through his death and resurrection now, we might receive grace so that we love the light. Listen, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, And that means God's grace has come upon you that you would love Jesus, that you would love the light. The only reason when you see God's word and you say, I love that, is because that's God's grace upon you. Do you know that? Take confidence in that. When you read God's word, even difficult passages, and you're going, I want to know this. I love this. I want to grow in my knowledge and my application of this word. That's God's grace taking you from from the dark to the light. It's good news. So take confidence in that. Let that assure you of your salvation. Uh, So what does Jesus now say? In verse 16, he turns and he says, The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. This is where it starts getting hard. 16, 17, 18, hard verses that we're going to rely on context we're going to rely upon the spirit and we're going to enter this passage with great humility we should always come to god's word with humility when we open god's word we don't open it saying okay i know exactly what this says i'm going to just read rather what we say is god change me through your word Take away any pride that I have. Expose any hard, hardness of heart. Expose that in my heart. That's what we should always be saying. And when we come to a text where it's obviously difficult, we should tread all the more humbly. Okay, so as we go through here, um, we're going we're gonna to come to our understanding and our meaning of the text. But listen, if we come at this text in three years from now, we might be able to preach it a little bit more clearly. I hope that we will be. Hopefully we've grown in more godliness and and we'll be able to understand it, hopefully even in greater clarity. So I wanted to say we're approaching this passage in humility because it's hard. 
Okay? Everyone, same page there? Okay, just want to make sure we're good. Um, so what is it saying? The law and the prophets run until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. It seems like what he is saying is that in the Old Testament, all the way up until John the Baptist, we've been looking forward to the kingdom. Okay, it's all been talking about the kingdom. We've been looking for the king of the kingdom, who's the serpent crusher. We've been looking for this king, and now when Jesus comes, the kingdom is here. One of the things we see clearly in Matthew, in Mark, and in Luke, when Jesus arrives, he says, repent, for the kingdom is at hand. It is here. The kingdom is ushered in, in the presence of Jesus Christ. So, Everything has been leading up to now, is what Jesus is saying. And then he says, um, and everyone forces his way into it. What does that mean? There's many interpretations. There's a lot of interpretations. Context can give us a pretty good clarity, um, can rule out most of the wrong interpretations. Um, So let me just give you a few of them so you can see how they go. We can take this as a positive instruction. Everyone is trying to force their way into the kingdom. This is good. Because after all, the Old Testament has been leading up to this moment. Now everyone wants in. But is that what's happening? Are the Pharisees saying, let us in? No, the Pharisees are seeming to grumble and they don't want to be in. So it seems to rule out that interpretation. We could look at it negatively. Everyone is trying to force their way into the kingdom. Kind of like what the Zealots would do. The Zealots were kind of a radical... um, Jewish group that they carried these daggers, and if you weren't living the right way, they knifed you in the back. That seems like really weird application for that to be right here in this passage. It would be the only place in all of the Gospels that Jesus would then directly um, address the zealots. So that doesn't seem to be right. Um, there's another interpretation. In fact, there's many others, but these were kind of the, the most popular. Um, but the one that seems to fit best would be that we see that the verb is acting on the subject, meaning that the kingdom is trying to bring everyone into it. So rather than thinking everyone is trying to get in the kingdom, what if it's the kingdom is here and it's urging you to come into the kingdom? That seems to make better sense if we see Jesus saying, actually, you guys are living in an abomination uh, to what God has called you to. And you guys can look at the Old Testament, and you can see that the Old Testament has been looking forward to the kingdom to this point, which is now here. And in order to enter into the kingdom, you must repent, come in. It seems that the flow works best that way. So the point is, the kingdom has come, and you must quickly repent and enter. And then in verse 17, Jesus seems to emphasize the permanence of the Old Testament by saying, it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. The dot is a comma, it's the smallest little mark in Hebrew. And so the point seems to be, um, because the kingdom has come, It doesn't mean we don't need the Old Testament anymore. It doesn't mean that law and morality and all the ethics we just throw out. It's not that the Old Testament is meaningless now, but rather the Old Testament is still very meaningful. In fact, the Old Testament now has even a greater meaning as we move into the New Testament because it is now being 
fulfilled. And then Jesus says in verse 18 something very, very strange. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. So I scratched my head a whole lot reading this going, I don't even understand what's happening here. Like how do we go from you're an abomination to the kingdom and everyone's trying, or in the kingdom's urging you to come in. And now hold on, a little side note on divorce and remarriage. And then back to a parable that goes to the preceding instruction. So I read it, and I read it, and I read it, and then I prayed, and I prayed some more, and then I read it, and that's what we do. That's what you do. You just read, and you pray, and you remember that God's word is inerrant. It's infallible. God has put it together, has held it together, and so what is here is for our instruction, and it's not random. So, then you pick up some commentaries also. Hopefully find some people who are smarter than you. Um, And then you realize that the commentaries are all split, and they don't know anything. And so then you come back to this passage, and you keep scratching your head and going, I I don't know what to do. So we skip it, and we just, no, we don't skip it. We don't skip. Um, We try to go with context here. Um, The context is the kingdom is urging us to come in and repent. What's in the Old Testament is now being fulfilled. But the Old Testament, we don't do away with. How do I give an example that we don't do away with the Old Testament? In fact, the kingdom takes what is in the Old Testament and shows how much more beautiful it is. I'm going to talk about marriage real quickly. So he says, um, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. He who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. There's two common teachings at this time. One common teaching is that it's very limited on how you get divorced. The other one, which was also very popular, said you can divorce your wife if she cooks the food wrong. Anything she does wrong, you divorce her. That was extremely common among the Pharisees at this point. It's a very popular teaching. Now, if we go back to the Old Testament, we see that marriage is this beautiful covenant that ultimately points to the covenant between Jesus and the bride, the church. And in the Old Testament, Moses allowed divorce. Remember, he allows it, but it was not meant to be so. But the reason he allows divorce is because of the sinfulness of the hearts of Israel. But now, as we move from the Old Testament, the shadow, to the reality, to the New Testament, Jesus is showing how that in the kingdom, that which was talked about in the Old Testament takes on even greater meaning and light. So he's elevating marriage at this moment. The point is not to give a full doctrine on marriage, but it's to simply show the Old Testament is not done away with, but rather what's talked about in the Old comes to even greater light here. If you go back to Matthew chapter 5, Sermon of the Mount, this is a good place to go at this moment. So you can flip back, Matthew chapter 5, and we'll just read a couple of these. Verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery. He takes what's in the Old Testament and he heightens it in the New Testament. Verse 33, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. 
Verse uh, 38, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other one also. Uh, Go to verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. He takes clear commandments in the Old Testament and he heightens them when we come to the new. They're not done away with, but now rather because of the light of the new go- of the gospel of Jesus, we understand them better. And so what he's saying here in Luke, what I believe he's saying is that we don't do away with the Old Testament. We now understand it even more because of Jesus. Hanging in? Close? He gives an example now. That's what I go to. It, it, this is where it, it becomes easier when we go to verse um, 19. He's going to give an example that's going to flesh out this meaning. He wants the Pharisees to see what you're treasuring is wrong. It doesn't line up with the Old or the New Testament. So now we have this example. And we take a rich guy and a poor guy and he begins contrasting them. The rich guy, if you look at verse 19, he's clothed well. He eats well every single day. The idea, he's well respected. He's a picture of success. He's what the Pharisees are. Okay, He's the older brother, if you go back to the prodigal son parable. And then we go to verse 20. A contrast is made. There's a poor man, and look what he's clothed with, sores, and he's hungry. And to heap shame upon shame, there are dogs that come and lick his sores. So we have an unclean guy being licked by unclean animals. So the whole picture is one of disgust and really a picture of failure. Okay, so we have picture of success over here, the rich guy picture of failure. Jesus is wanting to expose what you treasure is an abomination. At death, we see a great reversal occurs. We see in verse 22, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. So the poor man, the one who had nothing, now goes to Abraham. Abraham represents the people of God, and he goes and he's with him. So we see the poor man is now with God in his kingdom Forever. He's gone from poor to infinitely rich with God. That's the, that's the transition that we've had here. And now we see at the end of verse 22, the rich man also died. And he was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. So do you see the difference has taken place. The rich man who had everything now on earth, he's now in Hades, he's in hell, in torment. Verse 24, we see he's in anguish and in pain. The rich man proves that what man exalts is an abomination to God. He proves what we saw earlier of Jesus' teaching. He proves that. And the evidence is all seen in his life. The rich man is not in hell because he was not because he was rich, but he's in hell because he did not believe in God. The evidence is seen in how he lived. We know that he didn't repent because of the way he treated those around him. 
He's very much like the older brother. He did everything that was right. Where's my fattened calf, he says. I should be given everything. And the Pharisees are saying, we ought to have all of our money. It's what makes us stand out. We like to be respected. What do we learn here is that our social status, our financial status, in no way indicates God's favor upon you. Do you know that? You can have all the money in the world right now, and it does not mean you are a child of God. You can have no money right now, and that doesn't mean you're not a child of God. Money has no way of showing favor or disfavor upon you. Do you remember the church of Laodicea? There's seven letters being written in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation to seven different churches, and Laodicea is the last one. Listen to how Jesus describes them. He says, for you say, talking to the church, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. So here we have this church. They say, look at us, we're rich, we have everything that we want. And Jesus actually says, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. You're poor, you're blind, you're naked. I don't want you. You can be dirt poor, but in God's eyes, be rich. Or you can be filthy rich in here and be a spiritual pauper. Your financial status is in no way indicative of God's favor or disfavor upon you. Do you know that? The world says differently, but you need to know your financial status. God's not saying, well, I'd give you that raise if, uh, you know, church attendance was up a little bit. If you start giving a little more, I'll make sure you get more. You know, if you volunteered more, if you help more people, I will definitely... Now, maybe God will bless in some of those ways, but those are not clear indications of God's favor upon you. Now, it's not wrong to be rich. It's not wrong to be poor. It's not ethically wrong to be one or the other. But trusting in riches is like putting a life preserver made of concrete on and then jumping in the water and then sinking. It's an abomination to God if you treasure anything above God. The point is, the rich man did not repent, which is proved by his lack of compassion for the poor. His lack of compassion. Verse 24, he asked for Lazarus to have compassion on him and to touch his tongue with water. So he wants compassion now. Notice this. In eternity, because of where he's at, he wants help. And who does he want to have compassion on him? Lazarus. The one he only let eat the scraps from his food table. Now, did he, did he only let Lazarus have the food scraps because he wasn't aware of Lazarus? Are we too hard on the rich guy? Was he just not aware? I mean, maybe he was really rich. Maybe he had lots of gates. Maybe he just never went out the gate that Lazarus was at. Maybe he never saw Lazarus. Maybe he doesn't know Lazarus, right? I mean, let's give the guy the benefit of the doubt. We, we can do that. Except for the fact that um, how does the rich man ask the guy next to Abraham to come to him? He calls him by his name. You see? The point is, the rich guy knew Lazarus. He says, send Lazarus. Oh, so you know Lazarus. So you saw him at the gate. So we see his lack of compassion is not ignorance. It was intentional disobedience. He willfully did not help that who was right there before him 
every single day. He intentionally avoided him. So I just want to pause for a moment. Is there any need around you that you're intentionally avoiding? Just just think about that. Is there a need around you that you almost have to ignore every day? Maybe you work at at one of the uh, state buildings and you have to walk by a a poor person every single day. A homeless guy is just there. You just walk by him like everyone else does? Is there an area in your life that God is saying, there's an obvious need. You could begin meeting that need on a daily basis. Just, Just think about that. Where is there obvious need? Are you intentionally ignoring it. What we see then is, so the rich man desires compassion, but it's too late. He's missed his entrance into the kingdom. In fact, what we see is he says, Abraham answers and says, um, you're destined for anguish, and besides, in verse 26, there's this great chasm that's between us. There's no crossing back and forth. Now, this does not teach us that those who are in hell and those who are in heaven see each other. And those who are in hell are looking up going, man, can they help me? And those who are in hell are like, oh, that's kind of disgusting down there. That's that's not the point of this parable. The point of the parable is that the decisions we make in this life have eternal ramifications. And there is no reversing once we are in our eternal destiny. So when we enter into the kingdom of God and we're in heaven, you'll never end up in hell. Those who are in hell will never be able to work their way out of hell. Hebrews 9.27 says, Just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. We have one life to live. We have one life to live. After that comes judgment. This verse is not to make us to fear death. But rather, it's calling us to make sure of our salvation. Do you treasure God? Treasure God. Let it be seen in how you live. Paul, in Philippians chapter 3, he says he looks forward to the resurrection from the dead. He looks forward to being physically with Jesus. And then he says right after this, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I Press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made it my own. Here Paul seems to be saying, I'm working all the harder at my salvation because I want to attain the resurrection of the dead. Paul says, I can't wait to be with Jesus for all eternity. Therefore, I work hard. My life shows that I love Jesus. Now, why does Paul press on? Does Paul work really hard so he'll earn his way into heaven? Is that what Paul's thinking? If only my good deeds will outweigh my bad deeds, then I'll be in heaven? That's not what he says. He says at the end of verse 12, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Why does he work hard? Because he knows Jesus owns him. Because he knows he's a child of the Father. Listen, our assurance of our salvation is not to make us passive, but it's to make us active. Think of it this way. If you go into work tomorrow and your boss comes up to you and says, all right, everyone who does not, do, uh, who does not perform at a certain productivity level is going to be let go at the end of today. How hard would you work? Pretty hard. Now, would you do it willfully and joyfully? Or would you be working really hard? And what would you think of the people around you? i got to work hard on that guy. i got to work hard on that guy. And you'd be doing everything you can because you have to outperform them, right? It's either you or them, and it's not going to be you, right? How much love and joy would we express in our job at that moment? But now then, 
Think of it the other way. Your boss comes into you and says, man, we, we love having you here. In fact, we're going to continually train you, and we're going to provide all the resources that you want. And here's, here's what we want you to do. We want you to do it well and work hard, and we're just going to keep rewarding you. And, and don't worry about losing your job. We're going to keep you, and we're going to bestow all the, the riches that you need to make sure you're productive. How would that change your work environment? Would you still work hard? I think so. You work hard, not because you're trying to earn your job, but because you have your job. Now you have joy. By assurance, anxiety and fear is removed so that we can joyfully work. Same as with our salvation. The reason we have assurance of our salvation is so that we're not running around going, did I do more good things? Did I did bad things today? But it's so that we can willingly and joyfully serve our King. And all the idea of anxiety is removed from us of, have I been good enough to knowing I'm already been accepted by the righteousness of Jesus. Now I'm freed to live for him the way he calls me to. Isn't that good news? That's how he calls us to live. The reason we're generous with our money is not because we want to, want to because we're hoping to gain eternal life, but rather it's because we have eternal life. We realize what our eternal home is. We realize that we're already been co-heirs with Jesus, which when we're co-heirs with Jesus means we already own everything with him. And so right now we're just simply stewards, stewards of what is his. And so we're just called to give it away the way he calls us to. I, I want to encourage you to think at this moment. Um, if you're arrested at this moment and they were to bring evidence about your citizenship in the kingdom of God, what tangible evidence would they bring? What would be in your life that would convict you of being a member of God's kingdom? Uh, so evidence is always the tangible truth that a charge is, is, is accurate, is valid. So if, um, if a thief steals something, you need to have the video of him stealing it, you need to have a witness, or you need to be able to pretty much see that he has the stolen possessions within his possession, right? I mean, there has to be evidence that he took it. So what, what evidence would there be? See, the, the Pharisees are approaching their life as if, well, Abraham's our father. We can do whatever we want. We have the money. We're going to walk around. We're going to strut it. We're going to make sure everyone knows how good we are. We're just going to do what we want. But the whole point is, is that when we enter into the kingdom, our lives are changed. The kingdom makes demands upon our life. And in fact, it's through the Spirit He makes those changes in our life that we begin living more and more like Jesus. So the rich man now begs for Abraham to send Lazarus to his brothers to warn him. He realizes his fate is, 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 is firm and there's no changing it. So he says, well, send Lazarus back from the dead to my brothers so that then they will believe in the message of the kingdom of God and they won't come here. Wouldn't that be cool if the dead guys came back? It seems like it'd be pretty convincing. Um, Abraham then says, um, well, they have God's word. That's his answer. I love that. He just simply says, um, they have the Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And, of course, uh, uh, the rich man says, no, Father Abram, but if someone goes to him, then from the dead they will repent. They need something a little more sensational than your word. 
It's nice, but honestly, it's just not really good enough. If we could have a little bit more zip, a little bit more zap, it would be great. Then they'll actually believe. And so what does Abraham say? If they don't hear Moses and the prophets, then neither will they hear if, be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. You hear that? Now, is that how we think? Remember the story of Lazarus, a different Lazarus, and Jesus raises this Lazarus from the dead. Remember that in John chapter 11? Remember what the Pharisees do right after that? It's, it's amazing. Imagine, dead guy comes out, Pharisee huddle, let's kill Jesus. That's what happens. Literally goes, it says, now some believed, it does say some believed, but then Pharisees gather, we have to kill this guy. Huh, he just raised people from the dead. Don't you think that would be somewhat convincing? Those who do not want to believe the message through the words of Jesus will not believe the message in any other sensational sign either. Do you know that? I mean, I think oftentimes, think about your neighbor, think about your coworker, think about their unbeliever around you right now. And, and often I think, man, if they could just like hear from this guy, if they could just uh, see this truth, if they could just, you know, and we think about these amazing miracles that could happen that would then save them. But you know what the miracle is? It's already the fact that Jesus died and rose again from the grave. And you know what they need to hear? That. Is there really anything more sensational than the fact that Jesus came as a man, lived, died, and rose again? And what they need to then see is your life giving evidence to that. That's what they need to see. They don't need to see dead people come back to life. They don't need to see people walk on water. All of that's in God's word. What they need to hear is God's word, and they need your life to authenticate the word just by the way you're living. That doesn't mean you live perfect. Even by our repentance, we're showing our need for Jesus. So what, what the point is, is Abraham, Abraham is saying, what Luke is saying, what Jesus is saying, the word is sufficient to reveal our need to repent and instruct us on how to live a godly life. The word is there. The five brothers, they can read the word. It'll lead them to repentance and show them how to live. And it's there for you and me too. The word has been given to us that we would know how to live. Uh, this is why we, we encourage preaching of the word, why we encourage you to read the word at home, why we encourage you to be with other believers and read God's word because it's through God's word we come to faith. It's through God's word we grow in our faith. And it's through God's word we know how to live out our faith. Um, One of my favorite stories is the story of, um, you probably have heard, Nate Saint, Jim Elliott, Ed McCauley, Pete Fleming, and Roger Udarian. Remember the five guys who go down to the Aka Indians? I referenced it a little bit last week. Um, but there's these five guys. They, they graduate college, I believe Wheaton College, and they, uh, they go down to the Aka Indians, which is in South America, in Ecuador, and they begin making contact with them. So they've given up everything that they have, basically, to go live in South America and reach with the gospel this um, savage group that's known uh, for cannibalism. 
and they begin making headway. They actually begin um, having conversations. They even take one of the guys up in a plane, and they fly them all around, and it all looks like it's going good. And then on uh, January 8th in 1956, the Indians emerged from the jungle with spears. They killed them all and threw them in the river, and they were dead. Now, much of the world at this moment responded and went, what a waste. What a waste. These, these guys, who so much potential, and they just died in a jungle by Indians. What a waste. But then a few years later, their wives go down to that jungle, and they take the very same gospel, and they pick it up where those men died, and they share the gospel with the Indians, and they win to faith the very people who killed their husbands. Now imagine that conversation. Imagine that when they said, do you think God has anything for you to repent of? Yeah, killed your husband. Yeah, the way that I've lived. So what we then see is God loves to use our acts of compassion, our acts of generosity in amazing ways to proclaim the kingdom. That's who you and I are. When we come as believers in the kingdom, we are now vessels that God uses to proclaim his message. We do that with our words. We have to use words. And with our lifestyle. Our lifestyles are to image Jesus. Remember, he left heaven. He left riches to become poor so that we who are poor would believe in him and what? We would become rich. So that's what we do now with our life. We give away our riches. We are generous with our possessions, with our time, so that others who are poor would become rich and they'd believe in the message of Jesus. I want to encourage you. Um, what evidence is in your life that you're a member of God's kingdom? As we take communion, I just want to encourage you, be praying about that. Maybe possibly uh, there's some repentance that you need to, to ask for. Maybe you see there's obvious areas of generosity and compassion that you've been ignoring. Uh, maybe he's calling you to live in a certain way. Maybe he's encouraging you to serve in a new capacity that you've not been aware of. Maybe God is revealing to you that, hey, actually I can give more money my offering here to the church, or maybe there's other organizations also that you believe God is leading you to begin supporting and helping. Um, so as we take communion, I want to encourage you, just wrestle with what God is doing in your own heart. The Spirit is in you that you would live like Jesus. And when we live like Jesus, we will love and serve others. And so I want to go ahead and call the men to come forward. I'm going to help pass out communion. Um, so we're doing two offerings today. Um, and so I want to pray for that second offering. And...